Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to a live recording of Fashion Talks, the podcast about observing the world through the lens of fashion. I'm your host, Donna Bishop, and I am thrilled to be here again at Toronto Fashion Week in the beautiful Hazelton Hotel. And I'm very thrilled to be joined today by Franklin Benjamin Elman. How are you, Franklin? I'm very well, Donna. Thank uh, you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So you are at the helm of a very iconic label, Trujere. But before we get into your journey as to how you got there, I'd like to start at the very beginning of you so we can get to know you a little bit. Very good. Where were you born? A, a Where little, are you from? A little bit of, of, of Freudian analysis. Exactly. So uh, <laughs> I'm um, from Montreal, born and raised, and, um, you know, um, the, the, Montreal is a fascinating city, and I do believe that those things that make Montreal unique uh, impacted me in a very definite way. What are some of the unique things to Montreal that you, that you resonate with as you say that? So Montreal, I, I, we all know, is a bit of a North American anomaly insofar as it's a, um, it's, it's a francophone city in, let's say, the, the sea of the rest of at least the upper part of North America, excluding Mexico, naturally, but um, uh, that is English-speaking. So Montreal is, is, is sort of like this, its own reality, its own dimension in every conceivable regard for language, for culture, for attitude, uh, for history. And so um, you have like these dualities in Montreal that are a little bit, um, you know, both bourgeois and radical, English and French, old and new. So these are all things that I have taken with me. I know that theme of contrasts is something that's going to come up again. What kind of child were you growing up in Montreal? So um, I was a very shy child. I was very timid. Um, and I think that um, I was somebody who spent a great deal of time daydreaming. And um, I, I think that, you know, imagination and, and, and also nature were, um, were a form of escape for me. And so uh, I was a bit of a solitary kid and, um, you know, read a lot and, and daydreamt a lot. Were you, would you call yourself creative as a young person? Um, I think that I was probably more imaginative than creative, but maybe they go hand in hand and maybe a child begins with imagination and then uh, certainly the, um, the, the, the drive to create is something that eventually came along. And do you have siblings? I do. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I, yes, they have very, I, I have a brother and a sister, and they have very big personalities. Actually, the entire family, uh, there's, I, I'm in a way, um, let's say, one of the more reserved members of the family, and I think I'm today relatively outgoing, but um, I come from a, a family of big personalities, um, so uh, my, my mother and father divorced when I was rather young, and it was uh, long enough ago that that was uncommon. So I was sort of the only, only child among my immediate contemporaries that had divorced parents. Um, and um, my mother's family has a certain style, and my father's family has a certain style. So my mother's family, um, and, and again, this was something that, um, that very profoundly uh, impacted me, my mother's family, it's a family of esthetes. So the, the, the cult of beauty was very much part of the vocabulary, of the, of the language of my mother's family. And that's like my mother, 
her, her, her sister, her two brothers, their children, her, her parents. So they were interested in all things um, aesthetic, from art to architecture, fashion, interiors, beauty. They, you know, they kind of had this, again, the, the cult of beauty. They love beautiful people. And, um, and so, you know, they, they, there's sort of this preoccupation with surface. But it was not superficial. It was just um, a family that always had this very strong aesthetic, um, aesthetic orientation. So beauty, beauty in the material world, as well as like an internal beauty. It wasn't just a, a superficial consideration. A, a, absolutely, um, and the, you know the family also was extremely capable. It's a, you know a family of let's say capable. I want to say entrepreneurs or, or, or business people. So they had like this mix of um, you know aesthetic drive along with you know it's a family very capable. Uh, you know, capable individuals. Um, and there's a great deal of, I want to say in both families, um, I want to call it feminine power. I grew up with a mother that was a businesswoman and an entrepreneur. My grandmother, um, you know, took the reins of my grandfather's business because she was left um, a young widow. And I had aunts that were in business. And so it wasn't so much like now the dialogue is about, you know, you know female power. And that was something to me that is like, that is... the what I knew growing up. It wasn't a question of, oh, I'm comfortable with female power. I grew up in, in a culture, in a family that was so matriarchal that it was very much second nature. When were you first aware of fashion as something being more than just clothes that you use to cover your body? Well, well if I may, I just want to go back to of one course. other thing about um, my father's family because we hope he'll, he'll, feel, he'll feel very... Uh, he'll be annoyed with me if I neglect that yes, part balance, of the story, which is balance, equally balance. important. So my father's family, um, you know, I want to say they were, you know, really quite different to um, my mother's family insofar as there was something, I want to say, very soulful about them. And so, um, you know, everything on my mother's family was, was, you know, interested, let's say, in surface. And my father and his family was r rather soulful and I think interested in everything that was below the surface. So, you know, these, these are two let's say, aspects of character, character traits that are very much present in my person. It's sort of like this like, constant, you know, uh, uh, dialogue at the very least of, of what's, you know, above the surface and what's below the surface. Excellent. Dad represented as well. Thank you, Dad. <laughs> when was fashion something you were aware of as more than just clothing that covered your body? Is there a moment where it started to mean something more or different so, so in a way, you know, we're very much a product of, of what we observed at home, what we observed in our immediate, um, I want to say, community or reality growing up. So going back to that family that um, I described earlier, my mother's family, you had this cast of characters where there was, you know, my mother was this successful entrepreneur who was the daughter of someone who loved fashion. And so as she became successful, she expressed her success and her taste through her clothes. So this was something that was, you know, omnipresent in our, home, in our home. My mother, you know, she devoted time to, you know, to, to, to uh, cultivating her wardrobe and what, you know, the, her daily, you know, her daily 
preparation or daily outfit or traveling for business, coming to Toronto or elsewhere in Canada, like organizing her trips, organizing what she was going to wear. So there was a, this phenomenal, I want, to, I, want to say it, I want to say, platform for her to express her taste. My aunt, I have an aunt to my mother's sister, also a bit you know, minimal in her taste and loved sculptural design and the Japanese designers. And she was wearing Comme des Garçons and Yoji Yamamoto. And I had another aunt that was also an incredibly successful entrepreneur. And she was you know, a bit more Baroque in her taste. And so, you know, she wore Chanel and, and Versace and all these different things. So there wasn't a moment. It was always there. Maybe it was when did you realize that the rest of the world didn't look at fashion that way? Like when, because you had, you were so steeped in it. Yes. Do you ever remember thinking, well, clearly this is how everyone's household is. Do you, do you have a moment where you kind of realized that that wasn't how everyone maneuvered? Well, so it's a, it's a good question. I think that what I noticed, and this was something that um, I had to learn um, out in quote unquote the real world when I left the family fold, family fold it wasn't so much about uh, fashion as it was about beauty. My my parents were were very beautiful. They were not just lovely, you know, um, in an exterior sense, but also in an internal sense. So um, the the template that I received, let's say the file that was created in my mind, was that beauty and goodness were the same thing. And then you get out into the world and you realize there are plenty of people with very pretty faces that are not good at all. They're not kind, they're not good, they're not, you know, um, their intentions are not necessarily good. And so this was something that I had to undo in a way. Yeah, the paradigm got broken there. And my parents were, um, as much as there was this, again, cult of beauty or cult of art or however you want to put it, they were also, I want to say, extremely practical people and very good people. They're uh, almost like their moral setting was in the right place. So... Um, they, judgments were never made in my house of any kind. So that's how I went out into the world where I would, you know, uh, try. If somebody was really well-dressed or very stylish or inventive, I would remark on it. But then, you know, not everyone will express themselves through style or fashion or exterior things. They'll, you know, express their talent or intelligence or ability in other ways. And that is something that I always try to, not try to, I'm always on the lookout for. What kind of teenager were you? Teenage years are such a time when we are kind of forming the adult that we are going to grow into be. How would you describe yourself in those formative teen years? Right, so I was sort of like this this timid, um, shy, spaced out, you know, kid until I was about um, 11 or 12 years old. And then towards the end of primary school, um, I think that I somehow woke up from this daydream that had been my early childhood. And um, I might have been a little bit picked on by other kids and it was sort of like an easy target for, for bullies at school because I was, you know, really, really gentle. And, I, you know, um, I decided there was like this about, um, this about turn, this sea change in my person where I said, that that's it. I, you know, we're going into high school next year and I'm going to become you know, like a force to be reckoned with. I don't know where that determination came from, and maybe it was a survival mechanism, but that's what happened. And how did you manifest that? Do you remember? Was it just in your actions? Did you start to dress differently? Did you, uh, how did you maneuver through the world differently? So I, you know, it was, I won't tell you when, but it was long, you know, a long enough time ago that it was, you know, it was interesting times in fashion, right? So it was a creative era. It was a creative decade and fashion and music were everywhere. So, um, and Montreal was kind of like this, you know, um, 
there was like a lot of fermentation in Montreal creatively at that time. And again, one of the things that was really interesting in Montreal is that there was a very vibrant underground. So I was a kid, you know, bit bourgeois from, you know, a uh, bit of a protected milieu and then, you know, discovering downtown Montreal and discovering the underground. And so that... A bit of a punk scene happening there in there? There was club, you know, certainly punk and there was, you know, the club land was alive and well. So you go to clubs and um, the clubs were you know, like these hotbeds of creativity. Like Montreal always had a lot of attitude for a town that's, you know, it's not the biggest city in the world, but there was always, Montrealers have attitude. And so you go to the clubs and there would be like, you know, there were all kinds of inventive characters and you go also for the music. And so I brought that back to school. I'd like, you know, dressed a certain way and, you know, you had to, like any other high school, you have all of these different, you know, sects and cliques and hierarchies. And so I, you know, I began to you know, gravitate towards, or people gravitated, there's like, you know, this reciprocal gravitation towards like-minded spirits. So, you know, other girls or other kids that were creative and inventive and liked music and liked fashion and, you know, dreamt about going to London and Paris. And so we were all sort of, we spent time and started to, you know, go to the clubs. What kind of music was your... House music, period. <laughs> so, <laughs> End of discussion. Yeah, no, no, I don't want to say it's not exactly true. I was, my, there was always music. No, that, that's reductive. There was always music in my house. So um, my mother listened to Motown and also loved disco. But of course, you know, house music is merely like the bastard stepchild of disco. That's it's all, all that about is. dance, right? It's, it's all, all about, about dance. dance. It's and all percussion. about joy. Um, so my mother listened to, you know, Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder and Roberta Flack. And my brother listened to British rock. So you listen to The Police and Adam Ant and The English Beat and um, oh, uh, The Cure, Ska, Madness, The Style Council, and so on and so forth. So these all, all the music impacted. And like, of course, when you were getting dressed to go to the club, like preparing for the evening, the best part of the evening was really getting dressed. Because you put on, you know, you put on music and, you know, I, you know, well, I guess I'd assist, uh, 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 collective relatives had, had managed to buy me a stereo for one of my birthdays. And so, like, put on the music as loud as was humanly possible, you know, aggravate, you know, the shit out of my parents in the room <laughs> next door and let me put on, you know, put on the club music and get, you know, get ready to, you know, put on, you know, kind of compose the outfit and then go out. But that, you know, that early part of the evening was almost better than, you know, the club itself. When did you know you wanted to be a fashion designer? So, um, I went over this with my mother earlier today because the moment is very clear to me, but um, in another time, on our way home, my mother would stop with Double Park on Queen Mary Road um, outside of a tobacco shop and would send me into the tobacco shop to buy her cigarettes. She smoked Belvedere's. So, I went into the, into the tobacco shop to buy her cigarettes and there was, you know, a, a news rack with magazines and I remember seeing like a French magazine, maybe it was like French Vogue or L'Officiel or something like that and you had um, like uh, two models, a man and a woman wearing his and hers um, matching Gautier suits with like these powerful shoulders and broad lapels and these corset waists and then across the chest was um, this like, checkerboard motif. And he and her were wearing the same thing, and it was, like, the coolest thing I'd ever seen. So, like, my mother's honking outside in the car, like, <laughs> you know, and um, I'm, like, flipping through the magazine, I find credits, and I read, like, Jean-Paul Gaultier. 
So I go back into the car and I said, Ma, I said, Mom, have you ever heard of Jean-Paul Gaultier? And she said, yes, of course, he's a, he's a French fashion, fashion designer. He's very inventive. He's very creative. He's really good. And so I said, what's a fashion designer? And she, a fashion designer is someone who creates clothes, you know, hopefully interesting and good one and good clothes. I said, that's a job. Yeah. You can do like you can do that for a living. You can earn your living like creating clothes. And at that moment, I was I was like, it was like this epiphany, like I'm going to do that. And then the question was, how do I get there? And where did you go to design school? So I went to uh, uh, Rhode Island School of Design in Providence, Rhode Island. And part of that program was an internship. Yes. Yes. Later on. Yes. Um, Yes. Tell us about, how, about your journey to your internship there. So, you know, I was always a bit of, I was always, I want to say Eurocentric, and I, and I um, you know, a bit of a snob, and I said, you know, that's it, I'm going, you know, I want to get an internship in Paris. And um, I'd written to, you know, it was another day, we didn't have the internet, so you actually had to, I think that, on a, you know, a previous summer, um, summer backpacking trip, I had stolen like the entire yellow pages, French yellow pages, which, you know, weighed, you know, know, 30 30 pounds, papers heavy, (laughs) right? So I like stole this. And and so literally I had this um, phone book with all of the addresses of the various maisons. I was, you know, I picked my top 15 and I wrote, you know, I wrote them in a very, uh, you know, obsessive compulsive fashion. I sent up all these letters to whoever, whatever names I could find. And I eventually got a letter back from uh, Dior and, um, and they, you know, essentially offering me an internship. It was a, a two-month internship, and naturally, I seized the opportunity and went. And was that the last time you worked for the House of Dior? No, I worked for them later on after, after graduation, um, which um, was, was very exciting and felt like a, a homecoming, so to speak. What was working... I, I just want to zero in on the House of Dior for yes. a minute because I can only imagine the... The impact working in such a historical atelier yeah. must have been like. What was the environment like there? So, uh, you know, the world was, I want to say, um, a much bigger place then. People were far less mobile. And so when I went to work at, at Dior, I was the only non-French, non-European in the house. Um, and so it was rigor- rigorously French and extremely Parisian. And so um, um, at that time, again, you know, Paris was still very, very formal and uh, the house of Dior was extremely formal. So it's like, you know, you walked in in the morning, everyone was like, bonjour, bonjour, bonjour. You know, very, you know, sort of very, uh, very serious, very formal, very reserved environment. And um, there was very little talking in, uh, in the workplace, in the atelier. But... Um, what you did have was this extraordinary manual skill that the designers had. Everything was drawn by hand. Everything was rendered by hand. So the ready-to-wear designers, every single sketch was done first, you know, in, in, in pencil and then drawn over and, and fleshed out every illustration. And on another, at another desk, another table, you had people drawing the, the um, you know, the haute joaillerie, the, the jewels. And so the renderings of the jewels, it was extraordinary. Fittings were done by hand. You had, you know, people on hand draping directly on, on the model. So uh, there was this, you know, this, this capacity, um, this talent and ability uh, everywhere within the house. 
And when you, when you embarked on your, your professional year, uh, career post-school, post yeah. were you in apparel? Were you in accessories? So, so, Where did you land? So I, right, good question. I, I studied apparel design at, at Rhode Island School of Design, tailoring, drafting, draping, pattern making, all of that. And then a little bit after school, I became very fascinated by shoes. Um, and... Um, because I think also being very drawn to architecture, there's something quite architectural about shoes and so far, especially women's shoes with heels as an elevation. And so... It's very precise. It's really. very precise. And there's a certain degree of permanence. Unlike, you know, a dress, you know, especially if it's an inexpensive dress, it's a bit disposable. But, a, you know, a shoe has a degree of permanence. It can be something sculptural about it. And, um, and so shoes at that time were high, highly inventive. Uh, Costume National and Prada shoes, you know, Mucha Prada reinvented the wheel. And I was like, oh, that's incredible. I want to do that. This like 3D design. Um, and there were no schools in North America teaching shoe design at that time. Um, and so um, I, you know, I, I was, uh, I, I wrote, I actually asked for the job at, at Dior. And I said, I'd like to design shoes. And they were, you know, they had a shoe atelier. They had this tradition of making shoes that originally had been developed for Monsieur Dior by Roger Vivier. And they had um, relationships with factories in the Veneto in Italy. And um, I, that's where I began. And that's, I learned about shoes on the job. When did you transition from footwear to apparel? Or is, did that transition happen with Trugère? Oh, no. So... Um, I became very specialized in shoe design, actually. And um, a, a little bit later, let's say mid-career, I had um, sort of th this niche had been created whereby um, uh, apparel designers, ready-to-wear designers, that wanted to get into the world of shoes but didn't have a technical formation in, in, in shoe development came to me because I had a very strong technical background, but I also had a background in, in ready-to-wear. So I could understand them, their mentality. I could understand their creativity very rapidly. And so maybe they, they had a, a language that was relative to clothes and soft goods, and I had a, a language that understood both. So I could, based upon their input and their ideas, come up with designs and prototypes very quickly that would please them. And, well, so... And how, how did you come to be introduced to, to Trégère? How did that connection come about? I mean, the, the, the label, founded by a very forward-thinking woman in the 40s, uh, has been dormant since 1994. How did you come to meet, is it her sons that, that approached you? Uh, what happened was I was approached by investors that knew of my work, and uh, they asked me if I was interested in a collaboration. And so we were discussing potential strategies and what could be done, and it ha had always been my dream to reignite um, a heritage house, a house with prestige and pedigree. And so, but of course it had to be the right house because there's so much potential, the possibilities are, are endless. And so it had to be the right house. And when I rediscovered Trigère, because of course I, I'd, I'd known the house of Trigère from the time that I was in my early teens, I knew that it was very much, you know, an aha moment, like, that's it. It's for, for listeners who aren't familiar with the house of Trégère, what about it made it the right house? Okay, so um, Madame Trégère's story alone, just a story, we'll get to her work in a minute, her story is so extraordinary and so emotional 
that it's um, impossible not to connect with, with, with her. So, like, you know, summarized very briefly, here was a, a woman, a Parisian woman, um, who was trained in the Place Vendôme uh, as a couturière, and uh, she had the foresight to leave Paris before the Nazis marched in. They, they knew that things were getting bad um, in Germany and, and, and so on and so forth, and so they had the wherewithal to leave uh, to leave Paris, and they essentially uh, were bound to Buenos Aires, and the boat that they were on stopped in uh, in New York for a couple of days, and so they got off uh, the boat in New York, and they were walking down Fifth Avenue in, in January, and saw bikinis in the windows, you know, with, you know, freezing cold weather, and so Pauline was like, this is insane, like, I love this place. I'm not, I'm not leaving. So she, you know, resolved to settle in Manhattan. She had moved to Manhattan with, with her mother, who wasn't a youngster, and her two infant sons and her husband. And, you know, um, her talent was recognized immediately, so she went to go and work for uh, New York fashion houses. Her husband abandoned the family shortly after their arrival uh, to New York. So as they say, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. She had to... Um, provide for her family. And so she basically, you know, had these, a pair of diamond clip earrings that she, uh, that she sold. And uh, with her, you know, the, the, the funds that she was able to generate from the, 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 the sale of these earrings financed her first collection. So here you have a woman who is um, a refugee from Nazi fascism. She, you know, so moves to New York and becomes um, a female, a single mother and a female entrepreneur. Uh, today it would be remarkable. This is 1942. So absolutely a pioneer and ahead of her time in every conceivable way. And then went on to be, um, you know, worked for more than five decades. So her work is incredibly prolific. And she was the first, uh, they were, uh, the house of Trigère was the first house to uh, employ a woman of color to model. So during the height of the civil, civil rights era. There are so many um, forward-thinking notions that, I, that Pauline Treger seemed to have, her love of the jumpsuit, the way she took fabrics traditionally for day wear, like cottons and wools, and, and moved them into evening wear. I mean, and she was dressing everyone from Estee Lauder to Lena Horne to first ladies and Wallace Simpson and all sorts of, of celebrities of her time. What is it about her design aesthetic that really resonated with you? What is the heritage part sure. of her design that resonates? So, um, Madame Trigère was really a prodigy. I mean, the way she didn't really draw on paper, she would actually drape fabric directly on the, the physical form, on the model, on, 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 a, on a woman. So, um, and then that's how she would make her first, you know, her first prototypes. Um, her work was so, I want to say, conceptual, so intellectual, so sculptural, um, and it was also just, you know, timelessly chic. So it's this kind of, it's, you know, it, it appeals to both, you know, both sides of me, sort of, let's say, you know, the, the, the chic, which is surface, and then, you know, the, the complexity of construction, which is all intellectual. So, um, and her her designs are so timeless that you know you, you, one would go online still today and see you know the most expensive dealers in vintage couture and you know Trigère dresses are you know, they're they're perfect and so there is so much there to build on it's everything I like. 
Well, and she played with contrasts as well in terms yes. of, you know, lines that are hard and soft, yes. black and white. Right. And it, it's funny, as you were reflecting earlier in our conversation about your mom and your grandmother and the things that you enjoyed about how they um, enjoyed the beauty of aesthetics, I couldn't help but think of Pauline Trégère and how I can draw so many connections between what you liked about their approach to, to dressing and beauty and aesthetics and, and the glimmer in your eye when you talk about the house of Trégère. Yes, so uh, thank you. I mean, there's... Uh, it's uh, it's it's nice of you to make the connection. So and, and now as I'm I'm thinking to myself, it it, it really is uh, a very evident thing. So you know, I'm, as I'm like you know extrapolating the codes of the House of Trigère, um, and and of course she dressed everybody. I mean, we're talking about uh, Jacqueline, the most compelling beauties of her day: Jacqueline Kennedy and her sister Princess Radziwill, um, Grace Kelly, um, the Duchess of Windsor. I mean the uh, Liz Taylor, the list goes on and on. But uh, with regards to her work, and I'm looking at what are, what are the codes, and it's you know very clear this this uh, play, this uh, the fusion of black and white and masculine and feminine, sort of the avant-garde with uh, timelessness. And so I'm I'm thinking again back to the women in my family. They they were very comfortable also with both their female and let's say their their woman, you know, female and male energy. And that's in a way that's also Trigère. And I feel like the women that are most compelling to me are, let's say, very womanly, very feminine, but have like, let's say this, almost like a man's character. And that's, that's Trigère, and that's my mother. And those are, you know, those are the women in my family. And so it's almost like coming full circle. And how are those codes represented in some of your designs? Like WWD did a great article on the first collection and has some wonderful imagery of, you know, it's quite sculptural. You use transparent and opaque. You've brought back this very contrasting logo. Can you, can you maybe describe one of, the, one of the gowns or one of the outfits that, you know, you really can sort of see the codes that you've brought back in through your eyes? So, th thank you. Um, it's hard to describe a, a specific outfit, but in general, when I, you know, approach the design of the collection, you know, I'm thinking again, like, here, Madame Trigère was a woman designing for women, and um, you know, those are very, very big shoes to fill, and I take the responsibility very seriously, so I consider myself this eternal student, and again, she was such a prodigal talent that there's so much to learn there, but getting back to your question, um, you know, she was this woman who maybe had a little bit of masculine energy. And so I'm a man and, you know, I'm quite comfortable, let's say, with my feminine energy. So uh, I, I bring a little bit of, of that as well to what I'm doing. And then, um, you know, she was French. And so there was like this, you know, um, couture, which was French, and this ease which is North American to her work, sort of this fusion of the old world and the new world. And so I'm like, okay, that's cool. I'm going to do the same. How do we do that today? And for people who are now super excited and want to, you know, where can we find Trigère? Are you showing, you're showing here at Toronto Fashion Week. Yes. What, is the, what is the future of the brand? Where are you looking, you know, five years, 10 years so the, the, the rebirth of Trigère is very recent. It's only 12 months old. So until now, we've been working on Made to Measure. And we're just in the process of solidifying our wholesale and e-commerce distribution. And the, the goal of all of us is really to bring the, the beauty, the pedigree, the heritage, the cachet of 
trigère, that has a trigère to global recognition. And if people want to sort of follow the journey along and, and watch as the label grows, where are some of the best channels they can follow? Uh, absolutely. Um, we, you can find us on Instagram, uh, uh, Trigère, simply Trigère, and you'll have the, the option of seeing uh, Trigère official because you'll see Pauline Trigère and Trigère Couture, mm. Trigère official, and, um, and also on our website, www.trigère.com, and um, to overcome my uh, guttural French pronunciation, Trigère is spelled T-R-I-G-E-R-E. Fantastic. Franklin, it has been such a pleasure having you here today. Thank you so much for your, your candor and, and your generosity. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming to thank Fashion you, Talks today. You can follow Fashion Talks at Fashion Talks Pod. A big thank you to CAFA, our producing partners. You can learn more about CAFA at CAFA Awards, C-A-F-A-W-A-R-D-S. And until next time, I'm Donna Bishop, and this is Fashion Talks. Thanks so much. Thank you, Donna. Thank you so much. <laughs>